The No Surprises Act is here. During this AMA Advocacy Insights presentation moderated by Dr. Bobby McCamala, Chair of the AMA Board of Trustees, experts discuss the implementation of the No Surprises Act. Speakers walk us through enforcement challenges and the interaction between state and federal surprise billing requirements. Here's Dr. Bobby McCamala. I'm Dr. Bobby Mukamala. I'm an otolaryngologist here in Flint, Michigan, and it's my honor to serve you as chair of the board of the American Medical Association. Reducing the burden of unanticipated medical bills for patients through changes in federal policy has been a priority of the AMA for many years. The AMA strongly supports protecting patients from unanticipated medical bills that can significantly raise out-of-pocket expenses and threaten access to quality care and we supported these reforms as part of the No Surprises Act. That said, the implementation of the No Surprises Act is going to be incredibly challenging for physicians and other providers, and we are already seeing challenges arise since the law took effect on January 1st. As we will hear today, this new law brings a number of changes that are important to understand because they have the potential to significantly impact physician practices including a ban on out-of-network billing in several situations, changes to disclosure, as well as notice and consent rules, and new price transparency requirements. And there are many questions as well, such as how existing state surprise billing laws are interacting with this new federal law, and who is enforcing these requirements at the state level. will not focus heavily on the independent dispute resolution or IDR process available to physicians to challenge plans out of network payments, given the pressing nature of these other NSA requirements and the fact that some of that IDR process is still being finalized in many ways by the current administration. Please be on the lookout for more programming and resources on that part of the law, the IDR, in the near future. However, I will mention the AMA's ongoing concern with the way in which the Biden administration is implementing the IDR portion of the new law in the actions we have undertaken to hopefully make that process more balanced. As many of you are aware, regulations implementing the IDR process place a thumb on the scale in favor of insurers by requiring the arbiters to consider the health plan's median in-network rate as the appropriate out-of-network rate in most situations, and essentially predetermining the outcome of the process. Last month, the AMA joined with the American Hospital Association in suing the federal government for stepping outside their statutory authority in implementing the independent dispute resolution process under the No Surprises Act, and for upending the careful compromise Congress deliberately chose for resolving billing disputes. To be clear, the lawsuit doesn't challenge any of the patient protections in the bill or any of the new requirements on providers. Instead, it focuses on compelling the administration to bring the regulations in line with the way the law was written in Congress and allow the arbiter in the dispute resolution process to consider all factors relevant to payments that are enumerated in the statute. This will lead to what Congress intended, a fairer, more meaningful process to resolve disputes between healthcare providers and health plans. This challenge is a priority for the AMA and I know a priority for many of you. We will, of course, be keeping you updated on that effort, but for the focus of today's presentation, we are lucky to have with us today two experts who were involved in the development of the AMA Surprise Billing Toolkit and who know a great deal about both the No Surprises Act 
and state and federal enforcement of healthcare laws. First up, we have Michael Kolber. Michael is a partner at Manat with expertise in the implementation of health coverage issues, especially the Affordable Care Act, Medicare, and Medicaid managed care, value-based purchasing, and employment benefits. He provides legal and policy advice with a particular focus on mental health parity, medical loss ratio reporting, pharmacy benefit management, risk adjustment, and healthcare non-discrimination rules. He also provides regulatory advice and advocacy, counsels clients on corporate transactions, and litigates in federal court and before administrative tribunals. Prior to joining Manat, Michael was the lead legal advisor to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services on several key features of the Affordable Care Act, including essential health benefits, health insurance exchanges, and risk adjustment. Also with us is Joel Ario. Joel has over 30 years of experience shaping and implementing public health policy at the state and federal levels and provides strategic consulting and analysis on healthcare policies and institutions with an emphasis on the role of health insurers in delivering public and commercial coverage under various regulatory frameworks. Joel's experience includes two decades leading health insurance reform efforts for state and federal governments. As director of the Office of Health Insurance Exchanges at HHS, he worked closely with states and other stakeholders to develop the regulatory framework for exchanges, including the rights and responsibilities of states and the federal government in expanding coverage. On the state level, Joel has served as Pennsylvania Insurance Commissioner and Oregon Insurance Commissioner. He served on the Executive Committee of the National Association of Insurance Commissioners and was on the NAIC and, and was an NAIC officer. Joel also serves as an advisor to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in support of its work with states. As you can tell, we are in great hands to talk more about the implementation of the No Surprises Act. I will now turn it over to these experts for their presentation. Joel and Michael. Thank you. Uh, so Joel and I are very happy to be here with you today. So uh, I'm going to talk through some of the, the sort of the basics, the blocking and tackling about what's in the, in the law, what's in the regulations, and what you as, as physicians need to know um, now about implementing the law. And hopefully you and your practices are, are beginning to since it was, uh, has been in effect since January 1st. Uh, and then Joel's going to talk a little bit more about just the really complicated uh, network of, of state and federal um, regulators and enforcement um, that will be overseeing all of this uh, and, and how those are interacting, uh, fr frankly, in one of the more complicated ways um, Joel and I, I think, have, have seen. Um, so the, the basic issue in the No Surprises Act, and it's, it's uh, you know, many components to, to, the, to the statute, uh, some of which may have very little to do with surprise medical billing, but the core protection that we're, we're most focused on is the, the prohibition on surprise medical billing, uh, really in just three circumstances. Uh, for emergencies, uh, for emergency services that are rendered in hospital EDs or freestanding independent EDs, um, out-of-network air ambulances, um, and certain non-emergency services provided by out-of-network providers at an in-network hospital or ambulatory surgery center. And, and hospital, I'm, I'm using a shorthand for hospital, uh, critical access hospital or a hospital outpatient department. 
Uh, and in order to implement these and related provisions, there are really four things that uh, we think that physicians need to know now, uh, most of which are covered, as, as mentioned, in the, in the AMA toolkit that we worked on. Um, the one first is how is patient cost sharing uh, and provider payment determined for these out-of-network situations? Uh, two, um, what obligations exist to provide um, good faith estimates to patients? Um, the good faith estimates that we're talking about here actually don't tend to relate to this prize medical bills um, because currently this is only being forced for uninsured or self-pay patients, whereas this prize medical billing situations um, only arise for insured patients. Um, but it is a really substantial implementation challenge that providers are dealing with today. Um, so we, we want to spend some time focusing on that. Um, third, um, when an out-of-network provider treats a patient um, at an in-network facility, whether a hospital or, or an ASC, um, when can they get consent to balance bill for those um, non-emergency services, essentially when a patient is voluntarily chosen to get treated by an out-of-network provider? Um, and, and four, um, when can the provider or the facility get consent to balance bill for post-stabilization services in connection um, with a, uh, an emergency uh, visit uh, to a hospital or, or a freestanding ED? Um, th this was sort of a unique feature, a somewhat unique feature of the No Surprises Act that among the uh, emergency services protections, um, it includes uh, post-stabilization services and not just uh, assessment and, and stabilization of emergency patients. Uh, and so the question about when can a, can a, can a provider um, bill at out-of-network rates for, for post-stabilization services becomes uh, newly important. Um, and underlining all of these is, is how do the existing state surprise billing laws interact with the federal laws um, and who is going to be responsible for enforcing them, which, as we've said, um, gets pretty complicated and we'll, we'll walk through a few, few cases to explain it. Um, first, and this is sort of the overarching process for surprise medical billing. First, uh, we're, we're principally talking about two situations. For the most part, I'm not going to talk about the, the air ambulance uh, situation. Um, so the two, the two situations we're most concerned about is if um, a patient is seen as at an out-of-network um, ED, uh, including freestanding ED, um, or there's a charge for an out-of-network um, ancillary service received in an in-network um, facility. Um, these are, you know, tend to be um, out-of-network services for which they're, you know, the, the patient couldn't have consented in advance um, to receive treatment by an out-of-network provider, anesthesiologist, radiologist, labs, uh, hospitalist, and, and the like. Um, so in, the, in either of those two situations, the, um, one of the core protections is that the patient can only be required to pay the in-network cost sharing under the patient's health plan. Um, and, and all of these, the, the context is this is an insured patient that either has employer-sponsored coverage or has uh, individual market commercial coverage. Um, and so a patient would be limited to only, only being required to pay the in-network cost sharing. Of course, if that's a co-payment, it's straightforward to, to know what that amount is. If there's a deductible or co-insurance increasingly common, um, then a determination needs to be made about how that in-network deductible or coinsurance is calculated. Uh, and that's based on, on what's called the recognized amount, um, which essentially is one of these three things. It's either the amount that would come from a state all-payer model agreement, that's only Maryland, uh, whether there's a state law outside of Maryland that, um, that determines what the patient cost sharing should be. Um, and if there is a state law that applies to a particular service by a particular provider under, under a plan, then that would apply. 
um, or the qualifying payment amount, um, which is essentially the median in-network rate. Um, so essentially the plan will be required to determine which of these three rates applies, if it is the QPA, calculating the QPA, and then reporting back to the provider um, what the cost sharing should be um, based on that analysis. Um, the plan then uh, either, either uh, denies coverage or makes a payment, uh, which is supposed to be a, a sort of a reasonable payment amount. Um, and uh, there's a period of potential negotiation if the provider disagrees with the plan payment. If there isn't agreement in the, in the negotiation, the, the, um, the payment goes to the IDR process that you, you heard briefly about uh, before I got on. Um, I think one, one thing to, to highlight here is that the, um, um, the, 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 there, there's two separate um, calculations. One for the patient cost sharing, which happens at the front of this process, and two for the out-of-network reimbursement, which happens at the end of the process. Um, so patient cost sharing should be able to be determined you know, relatively quickly, um, and the patient's obligations should be resolved um, relatively soon in this process, um, even if there continues to be a dispute between the, the provider and the plan about what the out-of-network reimbursement should be to the provider. Um, and the, the result of that you know, dispute, if it does go to arbitration, does not affect the amount that the patient ultimately pays. It's just between the plan and provider. So that's one of the core protections is taking the patient out of that dispute. Um, I'll, I'll mention briefly, um, as, as you heard, there is litigation about the, uh, about the IDR process and the rules um, under, under the IDR process in terms of oh, what the arbitrator uh, should consider when determining um, what the out-of-network reimbursement should be. Um, there, there have been several uh, cases filed about this. Um, we should, I, I think, expect, you know, we may begin to see some decisions uh, from the various courts. Um, and, you know, depending on the outcomes of those cases, they may be appealed. Um, so through, you know, through the spring, uh, we may be, begin to get some insight into, you know, what the outcomes of those litigations may be, um, which would sort of time nicely um, with when these IDR ar arbitrations will begin to occur. Um, we don't have all the steps in here, um, but generally the IDRs um, could not begin until 90 days after a service was rendered. Um, so since this first started applying in January 1st, um, it may be that in April um, at the earliest, there may be, begin to be some, some arbitrations. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. So I want to go into a little bit more detail um, about the recognized amount, um, and this is the amount that the, um, the cost sharing is based on. And these are calculations that are going to be um, done by the plan and then reported to the provider about how much should be collected. Um, essentially, it should result in an amount that's no more than, the, than would have been charged if, uh, if an in-network um, provider had, had provided the care. Um, as I mentioned, there's these three standards, essentially the Maryland model, uh, a state law if it applies, or this QPA, which is an indicated 
previously is generally the median contracted rate. It's actually the median contracted rate from 2019 um, that is then inflated forward. And then there are special rules um, when uh, the median contracted rate doesn't doesn't apply, um, such as like the plan is was created newer than 2019 or the service didn't exist in 2019. So there isn't a contracted rate for it. Um, there's special rules that apply. Um, worth noting that for, for ERISA plans, private employer self-insured plans that, that don't use health insurers, uh, to underwrite their their costs, um, generally the federal rule is is going to apply about which what cost sharing should apply. Um, and then, as I said, there's a separate calculation of the out of network rate, um, and that amount um, again is going to be you know either the the Maryland all payer rate setting model if there's a specified state law. Um, that determines it, and then the federal IDR process. Um, I, I talked about the federal IDR process. Just a moment more about about the specified state law, because I think in in many states um, that may determine the reimbursement, because um, a, a significant number of states already had uh, state surprise billing laws before the No Surprises Act was enacted. Uh, and in general, in order to be a so-called specified state law. Um, the law needs to determine the um, reimbursement amount uh, for the particular service rendered by, by the provider type at issue and for the plan at issue. Um, so, for example, um, you know, a state law might uh, regulate reimbursement for, for example, emergency services, but not non-emergency services. A state law might regulate um, particular out-of-network providers. It might go by, you know, particular specialty types that it regulates and not other specialty types. Um, so it's conceivable, and in fact, it's likely that even in states that have state laws that set out-of-network reimbursement amounts, there will be um, certain types of plans, certain types of providers, uh, certain types of claims that um, out-of-network reimbursement might still be determined under the federal methodology, um, even if the state methodology does apply to some some cases. And we are seeing some states, you know, considering expanding the scope of their state laws to the extent they can, um, so that there's less of a um, Swiss cheese uh, jigsaw puzzle and, and the state law applies more, more broadly. So um, the good faith estimate has been an area of, of sort of enormous um, agita among providers um, because it's sort of one of the first things that really needs to be implemented by providers. Uh, I think the first thing worth noting about the good faith estimate as it's currently being applied um, is, so first of all, the good faith estimate is a requirement to provide patients uh, a good faith estimate of the charges um, that are expected, um, either upon request before a scheduled service is, is scheduled or at the time that the um, service is scheduled and, you know, before it's, it's rendered. Um, there have been two significant um, relaxations of this requirement under the federal rules and guidance. First, currently it's only being enforced with respect to uninsured or self-pay patients. These are patients that don't have any form of health coverage or have commercial health coverage and they're deciding not to use that health coverage. Um, if patients have Medicare or Medicaid, um, this requirement doesn't apply at all. Um, the second relaxation that I, you know, I think is significant is the good faith estimate, um, at least for this year, um, is only required to include the expected charges from the provider who's actually providing the estimate. Um, supposedly, beginning next year, uh, the departments are going to enforce a requirement that it includes um, the expected charges of other providers and other facilities that may be involved in the service 
uh, other than the one that's scheduling the service. So, you know, if a hospital is, is responsible for scheduling service, then the, you know, the treating providers charges should also be included. Um, so, you know, that, that requirement for the, the other providers to be included supposedly is going to go into effect January 1, 2023. Um, and, and then, as I mentioned, um, it's, it's only being enforced for, for um, self-pay or uninsured patients. It will supposedly eventually be applied um, to insured patients as well. Um, that is going to be even more complicated um, because the, the plan is that these good faith estimates would not necessarily be provided directly to the patient, um, but would be provided to their health plan, um, which would then use that good faith estimate to generate what's being called an advanced explanation of benefits, um, which would tell the patient how much out of pocket they would have to pay, essentially like the explanation of benefits they would get after the services are rendered. Um, but there, obviously there's a lot of um, uh, interconnections that will be required between providers and plans that are uh, don't currently exist and will need to be um, put in place somehow um, before that, that requirement is enforced to, to provide GFEs to insured patients. Um, so that, that does not currently exist. So um, there's a number of regulatory requirements about what needs to be in the good faith estimate. Um, you know, it's principally a description of the services um, that are expected to be provided and the uh, a listing of, of the charges that are expected. Um, there is a, um, a template form that the federal government has produced that sort of lays out how all this information should be included in the good faith estimate. Um, there are a number of other sort of notice and other requirements that are associated with this good faith uh, estimate requirement. Um, first off, there needs to be uh, a notice provider provided that explains um, um, the availability of the good faith estimate. Um, it has to be posted on the provider or facility's website, um, at the office, um, and wherever scheduling or cost questions arise, it has to be clear, understandable, prominently displayed, easily searchable. Um, there's also a, a template for this notice. Um, and then when does it need to be provided? Um, as I said, it can be it has to be provided when a scheduled service is scheduled, um, but it can also be provided, um, sort of or must also be provided when requested by a patient, um, even before they've scheduled um, the service. Um, the, the, the rules have a pretty broad um, uh, definition of when a GFE is, has been requested, essentially any time a, a patient asks about cost, that should be interpreted as a request for, for a good faith estimate that complies with these requirements. Um, and then the, one of the really sort of con significant consequences of the good faith estimate for uninsured and self-pay patients um, is that if the actual charges um, for the episode of care described in the good faith estimate exceed um, the, the, the good faith estimate by more than $400, um, the patient can dispute that bill through a new um, patient provider dispute resolution process. Um, this is separate from the IDR, independent dispute resolution process that exists um, in, in the context of surprise medical bills. Um, and uh, essentially, um, if any particular provider or facility's charges exceed you know, their estimate by $400, this process can be triggered. Um, and once once it's triggered, um, the provider has to provide um, evidence to the this, this new dispute resolution entity. Um, essentially, the only only reason that they can defend the higher than expected charges um, is if the the higher charges were because of medically necessary items or services that could not have been reasonably anticipated when the good faith estimate was provided. Um, you know, I think providers are thinking through a number of ways, you know, to avoid um, having to participate in this dispute resolution process. Um, you know, you, one might want to give good faith estimates that sort of 
error on the side of going high. Um, that, of course, presents problems um, because it may deter patients from getting medically necessary care if, if, if the estimate is sort of artificially um, too high to, to avoid these dispute resolutions. Um, another thing that, you know, providers and facilities might do is, you know, look at their bills before they go out um, and see if they can be essentially written down on the front end so that they don't exceed this $400 threshold. Um, and, you know, and then, and then you know, there may be some, some thoughts of sort of going through the process for at least some claims and seeing how it turns out. Um, but, you know, it, it seems like there's going to be a significant, you know, operational burden here to, to go through this process. So um, discussing um, uh, sort of two of these sort of core issues in surprise medical bills. Um, and, you know, in generally, this applies to the two situations we're talking about where there really are protections against surprise medical billings. Uh, first, uh, you know, the, the situation of non-emergency services in an in-network hospital or ASC, and the other is uh, emergency services um, at a hospital or, or, or independent ED. Um, and in both of those cases, despite there being this new federal protection against surprise medical billing, um, there are situations when um, a provider could uh, bill at their out-of-network rates and potentially balance bill. Um, for non-emergency services, um, if it's a service that can be, you know, actually selected by the patient and the, and the patient actively wants to use that of network provider, um, the provider can provide um, notice of the, uh, you know, the, the, the balance billing ahead of time. Uh, it has to include an estimate of the, of the charges and then the patient can consent to be balance billed. Um, now, this is for any provider type, um, except for ones that are specifically prohibited from balance billing um, under the regulations, which are, you know, things like, um, again, emergency medicine, anesthesiology, pathology, radiology, neonatology, sometimes, you know, referred to either as ancillary services um, or services that a patient can't reasonably, um, you know, select a provider, hospitalist, intensivist. Um, and then in addition to all of those, there's sort of a, a catch-all for any sort of urgently needed care that arises that the patient doesn't have a reasonable opportunity to select a provider for. Um, but, you know, say a patient wants to be treated by a particular surgeon um, who's out of network, but they want to do it at an in-network hospital, you know, for a scheduled procedure, um, the patient is permitted to do that and, you know, consent to um, pay the, the full out-of-network charges. Um, if that's what they choose to do. Um, there are some timing requirements about, you know, sort of when they need to consent um, to, to be balanced billed prior to the procedure. Um, and then for ED visits, um, the, as I said, the, this statute was somewhat unique in describing post-stabilization care um, as part of these ED protections. Um, and um, despite saying that, that post-stabilization care is generally part of uh, an emergency visit and subject to these balanced billing protections, there are circumstances in which a provider or facility um, can uh, seek to obtain consent to balance bill. Um, it has to be for, um, medical, for, for care that the provider determines the patient could travel to a network provider using non-emergency medical transportation or non-medical transportation, you know, meaning taking a cab or getting on a bus and going to a different hospital. Um, and if that is true, and if the patient is in, in a physical condition in which he or she can actually consent, uh, then the patient is provided notice, an estimate of what the out-of-network fees would be if the patient stayed at their current out-of-network facility, um, and the patient consents. Uh, you would all know better than I, but I, I suspect this is a somewhat unusual circumstance when this would ever occur, um, when a patient uh, 
you know, essentially can't be discharged or, you know, there's medically necessary care that the provider thinks still needs to happen in the hospital. Um, and yet the patient is well enough that the patient could travel um, by non-emergency medical transportation um, and, you know, get the care at, at an in-network provider. Um, you know, maybe if there's an in-network provider like in the same building or something like that, you know, it may be a situation where that could arise. But um, otherwise, it may be a, a sort of rare situation um, when, when there really is even an opportunity to get that consent to balance bill. Um, and so just to mention, as we said at the top, that, you know, we did prepare um, with the AMA this, this toolkit that goes into uh, somewhat greater detail on, on, I think, all the points I've raised today. Uh, and so we hope you, you take a look at that. Um, and I think the link is available both here and, and by email. With that, I'll turn it over to Joel. Thank you, uh, Michael. So the states vary a lot, and then the states also have choice under this law as to whether they want to enforce their own laws or defer to, to uh, federal uh, enforcement. So you're going to end up with a patchwork, not only among the states, but also within the states with regard to different uh, sorts of services. The basic standard that applies here is that again, the states get to choose if they want to enforce the law, but if they don't choose to enforce it, or if they choose to and then, and then don't actually enforce it, the federal government does have authority wherever the state is not quote substantially enforcing the law. There's a third of the states don't have any kind of balanced billing or surprise billing type law. A third of the states have, have a law, but it's a partial law. And then a third of the states have something approaching a comprehensive law in, in covering these sorts of issues. Those of you who are familiar with the ACA will recognize that standard as the ACA standard um, of deference to the states, but ultimately federal authority behind that. There are, there are two ways that a state can choose to be the primary enforcement agent. One is that they have a law on point and they choose to enforce that law. Again, that can vary by circumstance, but that's that would be one way the state can enforce the law. The second way is a collaborative enforcement agreement. I'm going to use the acronym here a little bit, CEA, but that a collaborative enforcement agreement is a mechanism in this law where the state contracts with the federal government to essentially be the federal government's agent in enforcing the law, it works as long as the parties comply um, with what the state does on, as the agent of the federal government. Ultimately, the federal government would have to step in under a CEA arrangement if there were you know, disputes and parties were not complying with what the state thought was the right uh, solution. So it's an attempt to give the state's power, but it doesn't ultimately work if there's not voluntary compliance. You know, if it's an insurer issue, most likely, the insurance departments, well, in every state, the insurance departments are going to have authority over fully insured plans. That's roughly half of the employer-based market. The states do not have authority over self-insured plans here as in other areas. There is a little quirk here, which is that the law does allow uh, employers to choose state enforcement. So a self-insured plan, a large employer could elect to be subject to state enforcement. Um, but they don't have to make that election. And the state doesn't have to allow it either. Um, provider enforcement is, you know, unfortunately for you guys, a little bit more murky at the current point. Uh, the Departments of Insurance could have been given authority under those state laws that predated this law or under the federal law for enforcement here, but they haven't been generally given that authority. And most of them are reticent to exercise that sort of authority through a cooperative agreement or some other mechanism so in general, provider enf uh, enforcement has been 
in most of the situations to date handled by delegating it back to or deferring to the federal government. There are in some cases, we'll see as we get through here, health departments, licensing boards, consumer protection agencies at the state level who may have some authority on the, on the provider issues. And then as Michael went through all those different circumstances, the way to think about enforcement is in each of those different circumstances, the state could make a different choice. So they could choose to enforce in emergency rooms, but not in you know, the situation of an in-network with an on-network provider, et cetera, et cetera. They could choose to enforce against insurers, but not providers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, something that may start happening more in the states that already is in one of the examples I'll talk about, states could try to help consumers, complaint handling, that sort of thing, can help them navigate the process. And that might include working both with state and federal uh, agencies. And then, of course, on most of the new provisions, you know, the states are going to probably defer these uh, uh, GFEs, particularly, to, uh, to federal enforcement until things get sorted out a little bit. Washington was the first state to kind of jump out of the box and assert what it was going to do at the state level. Washington's one of these states with a pretty comprehensive law. What Washington said in, in a uh, bulletin, I think it was early November, um, that they would enforce many of the provisions of their you know, basic pretty comprehensive surprise billing law. So the billing protections against balanced billing, um, the calculation of enrollee cost sharing, the pay provider payment and dispute resolution processes, all of that would allow Washington to essentially use its state law to enforce the whole process. But what they said was that if they got to issues with air ambulances, they didn't have authority there. So the state, for that back to CMS, self-funded groups, they did, Washington did take advantage of the notion that employer groups could elect to be put under the Washington law. So they will enforce the law for if there's that election, but otherwise they delegate it back to the federal government. And then for health providers, they basically said, you know, not our area have been given authority. So they're going to delegate that but to the State Department of Health. It's unclear what the State Department of Health is going to do in Washington still. And for facilities where there really wasn't in Washington authority over providers, that would go back to CMS. And then you see this detail about provider directories. There's a bunch of other things in the law where the state might have a law. Washington has what it like, it thinks it has a better provider directory law than what's in the No Surprises Act, so they've taken enforcement there um, as well. But you see already that it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly with the states. And again, I, I wouldn't rely on anything that you're hearing today as a done deal. It will probably evolve over time. Medicine doesn't stand still. And at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. This is kind of the big picture of how this is going to evolve. And again, Washington is one of the few states, there are a few more, Delaware is another example, that have put out things at the state level so far saying what they intend to do. But most of the activity so far has been private channels with the CMS, with the federal government, talking to people in the states, oftentimes the insurance regulators, but could be other state officials as well. And then through that process, they develop an understanding between the parties as to how enforcement will go. Many of us hope that what we see how that process was a kind of nice big chart that 
put everything together at a high level so we could just kind of skim through and see what every state is doing. But the way it's actually working is that CMS produces letters, pretty boilerplated letters, about six pages long, that go through the detail of what the arrangement is in each state. They've done that for 41 states so far. So they're a bit difficult to read, but they do tell you, if you understand how to read them, um, what the state will enforce directly, what the state will enforce through a collaborative agreement, and what CMS will enforce um, in quite a bit of detail. Um, the collaborative agreements uh, in these letters so far are an intention into the future. So to my knowledge, none have been produced yet. If I had to bet, Pennsylvania probably has the first of these because they've been more aggressive about trying to get a collaborative agreement, um, but that's, uh, that's still something that's coming in the future as well. So that's kind of what we know so far. Again, none of this is going to be written in stone yet, but it gives you an example, kind of a flavor of what states are trying or thinking about so far with state versus federal enforcement. So you have Texas, which uh, very proud of their law. Their laws work pretty well by all accounts down there in Texas, or maybe not all accounts, but um, in general, it's getting high marks, and it does address the broad range of issues, balanced billing, dispute resolution. Uh, in, in Texas, they have told the federal government they like their system. It's got a lot of voluntary compliance on all sides, and so they want to keep the Texas Medical Board, the Texas Board of Nursing, doing provider enforcement issues. They want to have the Texas Health and Human Service Commission regulate the healthcare facilities. Then, of course, the insurance department regulates the health plans. So if you want an example of a pretty robust state enforcement, states stepping up and saying, we're going to do it all, you know, Texas is a good example of that. Cooperative agreement, Pennsylvania, they had a partial uh, uh, law in place. So there, the, the Pennsylvania Insurance Department has been working with the federal government to coordinate state and federal enforcement. Part of that is if you go up on the insurance department's website, you'd see a web-based complaint handling system there where any consumer who you know can't figure out where to go with the federal or state government on some complaint, um, they can go to the PID website, enter a few basic pieces of data, and then they'll get complaint handling help to walk them through their complaint, which again, could, will in most cases probably include both state and federal enforcement agencies in the state, that includes the Department of Health. That's going to crop up in every state where they're, where this is moving beyond the insurance department. Uh, the state department, Department of State, actually in Pennsylvania, has provider licensing responsibilities, and the Drug and Alcohol Program has some provider oversight responsibilities as well. And then, of course, they are coordinating with the federal government in certain areas like providers and facilities, self-funded plans, the Federal Employee Health Benefit Plan. Not a small Thing. There are a lot of state, federal, a lot of federal employees. It's another area where there needs to be coordination. And then finally, there are going to be some states who want to just basically hand it over to the federal government. And the example here is Alabama, which has said, you know, they don't remember they don't have any law under the no specific surprise billing law. And they also, even if they did, have not indicated any interest in enforcing. And so the in that case, the federal government enforces. I do note there that Colorado could decide in the future, these decisions are revocable. So uh, Alabama could pick up enforcement at some point. And by the way, this could include, we don't know, I haven't seen a good example yet, but there are some states on the map with specified laws and you know comprehensive schemes that some people think may decide not to enforce those schemes, may decide 
simply to hand it over to the federal government. So it, even if you have a specified law, it doesn't mean for sure you're going to enforce. You still have the choice. The future of federal and state enforcement, this is you know, a little bit of uh, crystal balling, but I think the, the, at this point, states are generally deferring to federal enforcement for providers in their initial planning. That's particularly the case when I talk to states that you know, they don't want to be in a situation where they, they might want to be in a situation where they send a, a, a notice to providers saying, this is what we think the, the, the right solution is. But if the provider says, I disagree, you're going to have to enforce that. I so far know of no state that says they want to get into, you know, an enforcement fight like that. That would get delegated back to the federal government for now. Um, but the process could change as the rules get clarified. We've already talked about the fact that the rules, and I think a lot of it ultimately where this reside, ends up being federal versus state will depend on the preferences, frankly, of your group and some of the other stakeholders. On one end of where it could end up is like ERISA preemption, where the states have been basically preempted from regulating self-insured plans since the 1970s, even where states have wanted to regulate here, and some states have tried pretty hard, they basically get pushed back and not allowed to do it um, the, because the employer groups really oppose it and they zealously guard their exemption. So you could have a situation where some party or another is trying to make sure that states really don't have much of a role here. On the other side of the equation, the ACA enforcement process, you know, started out with, you know, the federal government having a lot of new rules for the states and many of the states wanting to resist those rules. But as of today, 48 states do their own rate reviews. Again, they have to go get certified by the federal government. They have to follow federal rules. But of 48 states, Texas being the most recent, do their own rate reviews. 21 states, so less than half still do state exchanges. The others for the federal uh, government. So you see a general pattern there of, you know, the stakeholders generally preferring state regulation, CMS generally deferring to that. And so it moves towards state regulation, um, but not entirely. Um, one challenge in this area as this moves forward is that there is no natural home at the state level for provider enforcement. There just aren't issues on which the, the, the there's a process in place to enforce things like this. There aren't laws like this for providers. So that's a, a hurdle. It could end up being insurance departments. Um, I think uh, you know, the, the NEIC's put out something about provider uh, responsibilities under the law bulletin. So you know, they, know, they understand how the laws work in this area. They could do more, but so far that hasn't really been invited by any of the parties. And so it's, it's kind of it's sort of operating in the background more. Um, what's coming up, implementation of the law, as Michael mentioned, you know, by the, the clock, it can't be any, uh, there won't be any independent dispute resolutions until at least April. We'll definitely see more, more guidance and more regulation from the federal government. Um, some issues are going to get resolved through litigation, as we've discussed. Um, I do think you'll see a lot more action at the state level, at least on the consumer protection side and maybe on the uh, enforcement side. And there are some additional resources in the deck that sort of foreshadows some of where that could go. And then there'll be efforts to coordinate and harmonize. You see that these small differences between state and federal law create a lot of difficult kind of decision-making and handoffs and so forth. You're starting to hear some states talk about, maybe we'll just uh, you know, pass laws that make us have the exact same provisions as the federal government, at least in certain areas, just so the laws are harmonized. So there may be more of that activity um, as well. With that, I'll turn it back over to Dr. McCamela. 
Yes. Thank you so much, Joel and Mike, for offering uh, this important and timely information on the No Surprises Act. Um, and also, please be on the lookout for additional AMA content on the No Surprises Act, including, again, this IDR process. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your day. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.